Then all at once, in the midst of his brooding, he halted suddenly, for it seemed to him that in the raging of the storm a voice had called to him, Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic orders? Sorry, I can't hear you. Where's the sound? You've cut out. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll fix it. No. <laughs> oh no. Who, if I cried out, would hear me across cyberspace into the dismal abyss of Zoom? Oh no, no one can hear me. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Liz about Raina Maria Rilke's Duino elegies. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you a writing prompt from Rilke himself. The quote of the day. Rilke was one of those poets who seems to have all kinds of things to say about writing and art and the creative process, most of which, to be honest, is extremely wise and good advice. He has this wonderful book called Letters to a Young Poet that I'd highly recommend to anyone aspiring to be a writer of any kind, not just a poet. To be honest, when I was younger, I encountered this book and felt that it was a little bit too, I'm not sure what to say, woo-woo, abstract, pretentious, maybe. And perhaps I still feel that in moments it is all of these things. But over the years, I've come to see that most of what he says in this book is, in fact, extremely wise. And my own personal experience has corroborated much of the advice that he gives his young correspondent. He's writing letters back and forth uh, to a person who wants to become a poet like he is. And here's something that he tells this person. He said, Rilke says, Nobody can counsel and help you. Nobody. There is only one single way. Go into yourself. Search for the reason that bids you write. Find out whether it is spreading out its roots in the deepest places of your heart. Acknowledge to yourself whether you would have to die if it were denied you to write. Rilke goes on to say, This above all, ask yourself in the stillest hour of your night, must I write? Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if this should be affirmative, if you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Your life, even into its most indifferent and slightest hour, must be a sign of this urge and a testimony to it. A work of art is good if it has sprung from necessity. In this nature of its origin lies the judgment of it. There is no other. This quote is actually an example of something that I read early on in my life and kind of bristled at. I didn't like it. I didn't like this kind of interior, spirit, semi-spiritual, faux-spiritual, look into yourself, you know, what does that even mean? And must I write? I mean, what is he supposed to be saying here? But over the years, I have to admit that this really grew on me. This is especially true for poetry. Poetry is not an especially valued or read or lauded or well-paid enterprise. There is, of course, a very healthy community of poets in the United States, but most of your friends and family, most of the broader society, lives in total ignorance to what you may have given your life to do. I certainly don't want to sound like a snob or bitter or like some kind of martyr, but this is where Rilke's advice, I think, comes into its own. You do this for its own sake. You write poetry because you like poetry. You don't write it to get attention. You don't write it to get jobs. You don't write it to get it published. You don't write it to have a great resume. You don't write it to get money. You don't write it to get fame. You write it because you like writing it. And if you ask yourself, would I keep writing it even if nobody paid any attention to it? If the answer is yes, then you're writing it for the best motives, you know? Not that any of that other stuff is bad. It's great when it happens, but it's extremely rare, and by no means guaranteed. So I think everybody who starts on this path has to know that they do it for, for its own sake. And poems that aren't written for their own sake don't have this fundamental sense of urgency and necessity that we saw in Miwosh and that Rilke is emphasizing here again. And for more about urgency and necessity and must-I questions in poetry, let's go into that discussion about Rilke's poems between me and Liz. Hi, Liz. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? I'm doing well. 
So uh, I got your email. Thank you very much. Those all sound like great topics to me now. And I'm happy to go where you want to. I don't really want to be a tyrant here. This book is so strange though, because I love it so much. As much as I loved Elliot, I might love this 10 times more. So good. And so it's going to be very hard for me. The My only worry for this conversation is that I'll want to read that one and then that one and then that one. <laughs> I'm quite, I'm going to be quite insistent that we read most of the first elegy out loud. Oh my word. Yeah. And then there's big chunks of the seventh. I want to read big chunks of the eighth. I want to read and of the ninth. Mm. So one, seven, eight, nine, those are kind of mm-hmm. my highlights. And I, I think I, I said, I don't want to be a tyrant. I will kind of tyrannically insist that we, that we go there. But if, yeah. if there are moments in two, three, four, five, six, ten. Um, that you really adore and m- must talk about, please let's do that. Yeah, yeah. And a- along a- along the way, yeah, we can hit all of these topics. Yes, and uh-huh. I, Michael, by no means we have to talk about those things. Oh, no, they we should. I mean, things that like came to my mind. No, no, this is great. In fact, let's yeah. start with your number one, because I, I kind of wanted to read um, people listening in this class. Uh, I'm now talking to you. Uh, you're going to be listening to this, I hope, before we meet on Monday as the class to talk about this book. Please, if you ha- if you haven't, at the time of listening to this, read the preface. Circle back and read the preface, right, Liz? Because it's good. Yes, it's very good. It's good. Uh, I'm going to now read parts of it for you. We should start here, I think, because this is your number one in the email. It is, right? Let me find Well, no, it's, I guess you're number two. It's one. kind of both. These poems... I think more than any other poem in modern history come with a myth of creation. And it's become this kind of archetypal anecdote of very annoying poets and the muse and inspiration. So I'm going to really try not to talk too much, but what I'm going to do is read a little bit of this first page of the preface, this letter from this princess who writes about Rilke's account of how these poems came to be. And Half of my brain is quite annoyed by this account. I, I quite, I think it's quite annoying and pretentious and eye-rolly. Oh, dear, <laughs> come on. Of course he would say this about his poems, you know? Of course he wrote them. But then, my other, yeah, the, the other half of my brain thinks, oh, no, this is really important. This is really good. So I want to pick your brain. And I want to know how you react, Liz, to this weird self-mythology, his, his own, Rilke's own uh, depiction of how he says these poems quote unquote, came to him. So he's staying at this uh, castle, Duino. Doesn't this princess have the most wonderful name? Princess Marie Fontaine and Taxus Hohenloa. Wow. <laughs> she was Rilke's friend and patron, and she opened up this castle to him. And in her memoir, she tells the story of what Rilke told her about how these poems came to be. Let's read a little bit of, about this. <clears throat> Rilke later told me how these elegies arose. He suspected nothing of what was taking hold inside him though he may have hinted at of it in a letter he wrote, quote, the nightingale is approaching. <laughs> Again, already, I have love and half hate that. It's beautiful. And I have indeed felt that, but it is annoyingly self-aggrandizing. <laughs> I don't know. It anyway, totally is. <laughs> it totally is, yeah. Had he perhaps felt what was on its way, but things seemed again to fall silent. A great sadness came over him. He began to think that this winter too would be fruitless. Then one morning he received a troublesome business letter. He wanted to be done with it quickly and had to concern himself with sums and other such tedious matters. Outside, a violent north wind was blowing, but the sun shone and the blue water had a silvery gleam. Rilke climbed down to the bastions, which, jutting to the east and west, were connected to the foot of the castle by a narrow path along the cliffs. These cliffs fall steeply for about 200 feet into the sea. Rilke paced back and forth deep in thought since the reply to the letter so concerned him. Then, all at once, in the midst of his brooding, he halted suddenly, for it seemed to him that in the raging of the storm, a voice had called to him, quote, who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic orders? He stood still listening. What is that? He half whispered. What is it? What is coming? He took out his notebook, which he always, always carried with him and wrote down these words together with a few lines that formed themselves without his intervention. Who had come? And then he knew the answer. The God, dot, dot, dot. Very calmly, he climbed back up to his room, set his notebook aside, and replied to the difficult letter. By that evening, the entire first elegy had been written down. So, yeah, I want to know what you think, Liz. Where do poems come from? 
Do they come out of the sky? Rilke is telling us that these poems came out of the sky. Like he literally heard a voice. Yeah, so you write poems. You, you read a lot of poems. Where do they come from? Sorry, I can't hear you. Where's the sound? You've cut out. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll fix it. I can send you a new link. Okay, I'll send you a new link. I'll see you in 30 seconds. Wer, wenn ich schrie, hörte mich denn aus der Engelordnungen? Und gesetzt selbst, es nähme einer mich plötzlich ans Herz, ich verginge von seinem stärkeren Dasein. Denn das Schöne ist nichts als des schrecklichen Anfang, den wir noch gerade ertragen. Und wir bewundern es so, weil es gelassen verschmäht, uns zu zerstören. Ein jeder Engel ist schrecklich. Hi. Can you? I can. Oh, boo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Michael, here's the thing. I got this new computer, and then all of a sudden this week, sometimes <laughs> the microphone just turns off. Oh, that is so, the worst. Oh my, seriously, these days especially, yeah. Don't worry. It's <laughs> as if, you know, the ghost of Rilke is, like, haunting us now, a voice out of the sky saying, no, 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 this, this cannot be talked about. They're too outside of the poem. <laughs> They must be in the poem. I think his ideal podcast about his own poetry would just be us reading the poems, right? I mean, he said he more or less says that, Great. which we'll get to. Great. But I, I really want to hear what you would say about like how annoying should poets get about the muse and inspiration and voices out of the sky? What do you think? Well, there's so many different ways a poem can come to be that although he is this one way, it might not always be the way. And I think of how he wrote all the other elegies Michael and that he spent a decade sitting on these ideas and listening so although this first elegy has this magical and like like you said mystical story behind how it came to be mm -hmm. I wonder if there there are lots of other ways for a poem to come into being I mean that this is proven to be true by anecdotes told by many other poets. I mean, we don't just have to use Rilke's model. I mean, many other poets just get up in the morning and work hard, you know, and don't really rely on mystical voices out of the sky and produce poems just as good. That's, that's the half of my brain that thinks sometimes, sometimes there are, I've never literally heard a voice out of the sky, but sometimes lines of poems just appear or the solution to an ending in a poem arrives. Right. You know, that makes me think actually of a place in one of Rilke's poems where he talks about something similar. Let me find it. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually it's in the first elegy. Great. It is on from page, the end of page five to page um, seven. Uh -huh. And talking about how like the stars are waiting for you. That's right. The waves are waiting for you. A violin surrendered itself to you, and all of it was a mission. And then yeah. I'll read this, this first part. But were you up to it? Weren't you always distracted by expectation, as though each moment announced a beloved's coming? Yeah. I wonder if, like, a part of that was that he was available to that voice. Something that that place on the cliff. What does this mean? I think you're absolutely right. So I have two questions. What does it mean to be available? And what do you take to be the, the what is the take-home lesson about, because you're right, I'm, I'm slightly doing misjustice to the story. Only this first little bit came to him all at once. He spent 10 years waiting and listening and just being patient. This is a 10 year, this took 10 years to write this book. Is there anything about our own writing practices that should change based on knowing this about Rilke? Or is this too, maybe too personal to replicate in our own lives? I don't think it's too personal. Oh, that's such a good question. What does it mean and what does it look like practically to be available to? Yeah, I don't have the, an answer. Yeah. 
I, I'm not quite sure. This part reminded me a bit of meditation and the idea of being present mm. and present for your existing moment and that that energy can be fuel for artistic yeah. things. This is a common theme. We, we saw Miwosh being present. We saw Zbigny of Herbert being present, just looking at a blacksmith shop. Um, so true. Yes. So I feel like, yeah, this is good out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. It's good to see that this trait comes up again and again in poets that we love. I'd right. add, I mean, this 10-year thing, I'd add, this is a hard thing for me to aspire to. I want to aspire to it. One of my teachers once told me that stubbornness, the, the importance of stubbornness cannot be overrated in a poet. Don't publish too early. Don't settle for the good enough. If you have a poem in your mind, wait as long as it takes for that poem to appear on the page the way that it does in your imagination. There's no stopwatch. I mean, there is death. That's why, that's why not to get too much, but that's why this is kind of hard for me to replicate because I think, well, 10, 10 years, I'll get hit by a car. You know, I, I won't, I don't have time to wait for 10 years. Right. So, but again, meditation, like this is a psychological skill that I think we all, if we all learned how to be more patient, we'd all write better poetry. The payout certainly seems worth it, at least in how Rilke describes it when he said that he wrote a letter to the person who is going to publish these and wrote in the letter, thank you for being so patient for me. They're here. Yeah. They're done. They are. That like, was so thank great. you so much. It's so good. Like, oh, make, like it, that to me is like that <laughs> breadcrumb of encouragement. Like, oh, maybe, maybe I should just wait. It, it is so encouraging. I mean, in a, it's encouraging in a weird way because people, people listening might be discouraged. Like, what, it's going to take me 10 years? Well, of course it's going to take you 10 years. It's going to take you longer. I mean, this is 10 years not starting not when Rilke decided to become a poet, but starting from he was already a mature poet when these poems started. Right. If you want to write, if you want to write something that lasts forever, it's like so arrogant to assume that this would be anything but like a life's work. Do you know what I mean? So if it's a life's yes. work for you know everybody else, we're no exception. You know, we're absolutely no <laughs> exception. You wanted to talk about the futility. This is my phrasing, not yours. The pointlessness of talking about the poems. And we have Rilke's word to corroborate how pointless it is to talk about the poems and in some way undercutting the very project of this recording. So I'll just read <laughs> the relevant bit in this preface. And then, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. So this is page uh, 12, XII of the preface. This translator, Edward Snow, is writing this preface, I think, yeah. Just make sure, yeah. Edward Snow writes, Despite Rilke's personal, sometimes almost hermetic investment in the elegies, he believed that his poetry spoke for itself. He distrusted commentaries as dilutions and foreclosures of the individual's reading experience. When a friend wrote to him that she felt the key to one of the sonnets to Orpheus lay in the idea of the transmigration of souls, he responded, quote, you are thinking too far out beyond the poem itself. I believe that no poem in the sonnets to Orpheus means anything that is not fully written out there. Often it is true with its most secret name. All allusion, I am convinced, would be contradictory to the indescribable, quote, being there of the poem, unquote. So this is Rilke's phrase, the being there of the poem. But yeah, Edward Snow keeps, keeps writing. In another context, he wrote that his most recalcitrant obscurities, and the Duino elegies are full of recalcitrant obscurities, may require not elucidation so much as submitting to. I find this so good. People listening who are kind of struggling with the Duino elegies don't attempt to elucidate them. Just submit to them. We might not like that phrasing, you know, like, I don't want to submit to anything. Kind of gets our pride in, our, in, a, in a bad way. Liz, what are your thoughts about this? You know, I noticed, I guess, when in a lot of his poems, when the speaker is interacting with, I don't know what you might call it, the divine or that, or angels, That's right. or that music. He describes trembling, and he describes... Um, no, that's right. Being crushed by their divinity. Yes, yes. It's like a, a bodily sensation. And I think if we were to take his experience of penning these poems, 
as a blueprint for how we should be experiencing these ponds as artifacts that maybe he doesn't want us to be thinking about what they mean and that instead the submitting to is is almost more physical than we usually let artwork allow to be you know yeah, yeah. certainly there certainly there you, are, go, go for it i talked to oh much. no i would ask what you think like what do you think of that i think the same thing i think there are certainly moments in the poem and we'll see we're, we're about to turn to the poems themselves there certainly are many moments in the poems that are quite clear in terms of meaning he says things quite you know nakedly and openly but he's right. He, he knows that there are recalcitrant obscurities in his poems. He knows that. And he says these, these moments, so there are clear moments and there are unclear moments. And the unclear moments don't require elucidation. Just submit to them. It sounds egotistical for a poet to say, you must submit to my poetry. You know, readers might bristle at that, but by their fruits, you shall know them is what I say. I mean, if you write poems this good, I'll let the author say more or less whatever he or she wants to about the best way to approach them. But there's this moment in, I think, the second elegy. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. It's, it's actually the very first part of the first elegy. And even if one of them pressed me suddenly yeah, to his right. heart. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that what you mean? The hug? That's, exactly, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. So this, yeah. this, this might be a signal that it's time to read the first elegy. Now, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read most of it. I just think this is so beautiful. And I, there's a reason. I'll try to make my reasons for reading all of it clear kind of at the end. So maybe I'll pause from time to time and just kind of ask you what you think. Not like, what does this mean? But just, how do you feel about this? Yeah. So it begins with this very famous line. It's a kind of, you know, many classical poems, epics especially, begin with an evocation to the muse. O oh, muse, help me tell the story of Odysseus and his way home to Ithaca. You know, I need your help. This is a kind of 20th century version of that where you know, he's seen the wars and destructions. His faith in this contact with the divine is tenuous. He's much less certain that there's anyone watching or listening. Yeah. I, I really love how modern this is. Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic orders? And even if one of them pressed me suddenly to his heart, I'd be consumed in his stronger existence. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we can just barely endure. And we stand in awe of it as it coolly disdains to destroy us. Every angel is terrifying. Wow. You read the Bible and you people go into mountains and see divinity in all of its glory and they have to be kind of shielded. You know what I mean? They have to be prepared. It's too much. So the Bible kind of corroborates this. Um, but even, you know, you stand in, think of the best song you've ever heard, the most triumphant work of art you've ever experienced. You're kind of weeping. Liz, why are you weeping? Read my mind. What am I trying to say? What makes you kind of crumple up? Oh man, I don't know. Just like the submitting to an artwork, I think I think sometimes it happens because you've allowed it, but other times, like he's talking here, it's we just can't mm. help but be by this stronger presence or existence of being. It consumes us. It crushes us. Its beauty is too magnificent, and we just—it's scary. You know, he's like, oh my gosh, Beethoven made that, you know? Or like, I don't know, I've stood in some, some in front of some Van Goghs and I think, how is this possible? You know, how is this even possible? I'll keep, re I'll keep reading. And so I check myself and swallow the luring call of dark sobs. Alas, who can we turn to in our need? Not angels, not humans. And the sly animals see at once how little at home we are in the interpreted world really quite love that word interpreted. There's a way to live in the world that's too cerebral or too interpreted. This is the human mm -hmm. way. Animals don't interpret the world. They just kind of eat and sleep. And... Mm -hmm. We've made the world a place where we're not at home in it. That leaves us some tree on a hillside on which our eyes fasten day after day. Leaves us yesterday's street and the coddled loyalty of an old habit that liked it here, stayed on and never left. 
Oh, and the night, the night when the wind full of world space gnaws at our faces. For whom won't the night be there, desired, gently disappointing, a hard rendezvous for each toiling heart? Is it easier for lovers? This is a theme that comes up in these elegies. Love, there's this kind of trifecta, love and art and God or the divine. They all have this in common, don't they? Love also kind of transports us. It's terrifying. It's beautiful. It seems to come from another place. I'll keep reading. Yes, the springtimes needed you. So great. Many a star was waiting for your eyes only. A wave swelled toward you out of the past, or a violin surrendered itself as you walked by an open window. All that was mission, right? You had a duty. You, you highlighted this moment. I'll keep reading for a sentence or two, but were you up to it? According to Liz, what is, what is the duty of the artist in the world? What would you say? Art is something easy to dismiss. You know, it's like, oh, who needs art, you know? Or this, is a, this, this doesn't fill starving bellies. No, I think page after page, and, and I hope we'll have time to elaborate this. Rilke is asserting we have an important job to do. What do you think? You know, I think I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm still trying to, to figure out what what my purpose for creation is. And I do like what you said about art doesn't feed starving bellies. Art doesn't cure diseases. Art doesn't yeah. do all my word. <laughs> this is the most adventurous podcast. This is great. I might leave some of these in just because it's fun. <laughs> Please. And then the phone the, fell, people. Fell on the table. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know what their duty is, but I do like the idea of living a life where you not expect but believe that things exist and that that is a good enough reason. Yeah. You know? The yeah. springtime needed you. Rilke is telling you, Liz, he's talking to you. The springtime needed you. The stars are for, why do stars exist? For your eyes. Is this baloney? Is this total baloney? Is this what the artist needs to tell him or herself to like sleep at night? Is this narcissism? Or are artists in some way actually needed? Does spring need you? What do you think? Right. Is this true, is this true or right. false? The springtime needed you. Well, I guess my I guess my hesitation is is to count myself as this in this not elite but excluding group of only artists. The stars only exist for the artists, or this the yeah. the spring only needs you. Yeah, but I think yeah, what you just said though make gives me an idea. It might not be artist like you might be humans. It might not be artist or poet. There might be something about the human creature because he says, you know, animals can't help us, not angels, not, you know, there's something about the human creature that is different. And maybe springs need, the springtime needs humans and the stars, the stars need humans in some way. But again, you know, I hear people saying this is all anthropocentric. This is a, a logical fallacy. We're not needed in this way. Let's keep reading. I'll skip a little bit. But were you up to it? We have a duty, but were you up to it? Isn't it time that those most ancient sorrows of ours grew fruitful? Right, so we've been kind of wounded by our mortality and we can turn that into beautiful fruit. Time that we tenderly loosed ourselves from the loved one and unsteadily survived the way the arrow suddenly all vector survives the string to be more than itself. For abiding is nowhere. I don't want to uh, interpret the poem but just to add a slight little gloss, I think the way I read this is just simply to say everything disappears, nothing abides. Permanence, it doesn't exist. This is a problem, right? This is a problem. And, and we don't exist. In another elegy, he says us, the most fleeting of all. That's exactly right. We and yet something depends on us. I hope we get to that moment. Um, I'll skip a little bit. When you entered a church in Rome or Naples, I'm now on the very bottom of page seven. When you entered a church in Rome or Naples, didn't their fate speak quietly to you? Or an inscription echoed deep inside you as not long ago that tablet in Santa Maria Formosa, 
their charge to me, that I brush gently aside the veil of injustice that sometimes hinders a bit their spirit's pure movement. And death demands a labor, a tying up of loose ends, before one has that first feeling of eternity. But the living all make the same mistake. They distinguish too sharply. Angels, it's said, often don't know whether they move among the living or the dead. The eternal current bears all the ages with it through both kingdoms forever and drowns their voices in both. In the end, those torn from us early no longer need us, right? So don't grieve for the dead. They're okay. They grow slowly unaccustomed to earthly things in the gentle manner one outgrows a mother's breasts. But we, who need such great mysteries, for whom so often blessed progress springs from grief, could we exist without them? It is a tale told in vain, that myth of lament for Linos. So this is an ancient myth he's referring to, in which music first pierced the shell of numbness. It's a myth that involves the invention of music. You can read this in Greek mythology. This is one account of how music is invented. This boy, beautiful boy named Linus dies, and people are so upset their shrieks turn into music, their shrieks of grief, in which music first pierced the shell of numbness, shocked space, which an almost divine youth had suddenly left forever. Then in the void, vibrations, which in us now are rapture and solace and help. Liz, you and me together, let's kind of summarize how to say this exactly. I don't want to say let's summarize what we've learned, but... Several, I think, clear enough assertions are made in this elegy. What have we learned? Who, if I cried out, would hear me among the angelic orders? So the first thing we learn is that we're disconnected from the divine. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, right. What else could we add to this list? And then so. after we learn that there is something that we don't understand when we practice the normal customs of, you know, human living that there's something that animals, you know, or trees or leaves understand that we don't. Excellent. Very excellent. We are not at home in the world. Other things are at home in the world. We're not at home in the world. We're, we're disconnected from the divine. We're not at home in the world. And that makes us different from other things that are at home in the world. This is very good. Just going down the poem now, what's next? Could we add to this list, do you think? The next thing might be, and yet we have a purpose. We're disconnected from the divine. We're not at home in this world, but we have a job to do while we're here. Spring needs us. What that job is, I think still is a little bit fuzzy. What, what next? What do we learn next about our condition here? I think we also learn after that, after learning that we have a purpose, we learn that the void or absence of a person I don't know, recalls us back to all of these truths. Good. It has, the, yeah. our, our job has something to do with grief mm-hmm. and what comes out of human grief. Mm-hmm. Human grief can be turned, this is right, this is what he, he says when he means, isn't it time that these most ancient sorrows of ours grew fruitful? So human beings can experience sorrow in a way that like a deer or a snake can't. Those creatures experience pain and fear, of course, but do they experience sorrow? I don't know, probably not, probably not in a homo sapien way. And there's something fruitful that we need to give the world because we can experience these emotions. We also will learn that nothing abides. Everything dies or changes or passes. It's related to this you know, concept of grief. Oh, he says this wonderful provocative thing about the living distinguished too sharply between the living and the dead. Angels don't know the difference. So mm-hmm. there's this metaphysics proposed to us in which there's no difference between the dead and the living. It's a bit weird. I think he also, when, when he says they distinguish too sharply, it also calls me back to that beginning of the poem that says that we don't, there's something where we distinguish too sharply, we experience too cerebrally, yeah. and we don't allow our spirits to be or exist here or feel or I don't know. This comes up, this is exactly right. This comes up, I think, most explicitly in the eighth elegy. Thinking is a problem. And animals, they don't have this higher level. They don't have as much self-consciousness. I think a cat, you can't tell me a cat isn't self-conscious. 
you know, or isn't capable of irony. You know, I've seen a cat throw some serious shade. They, they, they know who they are and what they do in this world. But it, you know what I mean. They're not, there's no cat Hamlet you know, <laughs> brooding about the meaning of life. Um, right. So we, humans do have this higher level consciousness that is a problem. It's a problem. And at the end of this, I, lo- I absolutely love this. So this boy dies, Linus dies, and grief so powerful that it shocks space. It literally sends vibrations into the air, sound waves, right? Vibrations into space, into outer space. This is, somebody dies, people mourn him so powerfully that their sound waves of their grief go into space, shock space, and we now kind of can inhabit these vibrations in a way that feels like rapture and solace and help. This is so good. Why is that good? <laughs> You're nodding your head. Inha- what? The inhabiting of a, of a vibration. Yeah. What in the world? Yeah. He, he wants us to experience our, his poems by inhabiting them and feeling their vibrations too. Totally. This is what he means when he says, submit to it. This is what you do when you go listen to Mozart or when you stand in front of Van Gogh or when you read Dickinson, you know, you just, some, we're going to get to Dickinson soon. And I don't really know what's happening in all those poems, but man, those vibrations, I know what they feel like and they are absolutely rapture and solace and help, you know, without a doubt. I wanted to spend a lot of time on this first elegy because it's <laughs> an entire religion is contained in one poem. Do you know what I mean? Like an entire spiritual canon an entire metaphysics, right? We're disconnected from the divine. We're not at home in the world. We have a duty to perform here in this world. Things pass. The dead and the living aren't as different as we might think. And grief, human, the, the ability for humans to grieve is important and can be made beautiful. This is like a, a poem that invents, it doesn't really invent a religion, but this is a writing prompt that will take you 10 years, everybody. Go write a poem that contains a religion. Am I making any sense? Does this make sense? Yes, yes, yes. Like, you're making, you're making. I love all those little haiku. Oh, about, no. oh the bees and, and the cuckoo and, you, you know, the wheelbarrow. So much depends upon the wheelbarrow. You can write little poems about little meaning, meaning, quote unquote, meaningless things and make them meaningful. But let's not only do that. Let's also try this other thing where we say, where we say, what do I actually think about life, death, God, the divine, pain, beauty? What do I actually think? Put it into a poem. Wow. It's brave. It's so brave. I mean, that's what you have to do. Be brave and say, like, this will take 10 years. Yeah. And maybe I'll fail. That's why you referred to this very exuberant letter of his. Like, they are. The 10th elegy is, 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 it is. It's finished. You can't believe that he was lucky enough to finish them. It makes me want to want to weep i'm so happy for him like that that feeling of 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 being patient enough to let something arrive as gorgeous as elegy is just it just makes me want to weep (laughs) well liz this your reaction is exactly perfect corroboration of the end of this first elegy because think about your favorite works of art they are rapturous they give you solace and they feel like help you know like you wouldn't want to live without them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. They, they, you, you want to weep because they exist and you're grateful that they exist. And this might be answering the question about duty. What is, it, what is our duty? It's to put things into the world that make people feel grateful that they're alive. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can, that can yes. be a poem. That can be, you know, like a park that you design, that can be a tree that you plant, that could be a kid that you raise that turns out good, you know. It can be small things, it can be big things, but send out rapture and solace and help into the world. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, no, this makes me think of a conversation we had um, a few months ago about if poems can or if poems should speak to social issues. Right. And uh, if the um, risk you take by 
by writing a poem like that is that it might become a type of propaganda right? or it might lose the essence of what art is. And you said something very similar to this. You said that, you know, what if, what if the purpose of art is to make the world a place that's worth living in yeah. or a place where, where people feel solace or, or can, can understand their grief in a new way. Yeah. I mean, I was just quoting Rilke. This isn't my wisdom. I mean, I, this poem is teaching me how to live. And so anything I know about any small scraps that I know about how to move and be in the world has come from, you know, poems like this. Let's jump to seventh elegy because seventh, eighth, and ninth, we have to get to some of this. Yes. Um, let's go to page 41, bottom of page 41. It's just kind of a swoon of, you can't believe that things exist. Those towering summer nights and the stars, the stars of the earth, oh, to be dead and to know them endlessly, all the stars, for how, how, how to forget them. And thus I'd call my lover, but not only she would come, other girls would come from the crumbling graves and stand before me. For could I limit my call to just one? The interred seek the earth's surface forever. So if you're dead, people who are dead miss the pleasures of being alive, you know? And they would want to come back and look at the stars one more time. I don't know. The interred seek the earth's surface forever. You children, mm -hmm. one present thing truly grasp would count for so many. The whole of destiny crowds into childhood. How often you would overtake your lover panting, panting from the blissful chase, aimless, breaking into freedom. Life here is magic. <laughs> How did he do it? You can't say that in a poem. Justify this, please, Liz. <laughs> Life here is magic? Like, come on. Yes. It's so trite. Yes. So how does, he, how does he make you say absolutely right and not, come on, this is cheesy? Right. Yes, it, like you said, it, it would seem so trite if, if you were to pluck it from this place in the poem and just tell me. But yeah, something about its placement in this poem makes me say, yes, that's, that's absolutely true. What does he do? Oh, man, what, what in the world does he do? I I'm, not, I'm asking you a question I probably couldn't answer. I, maybe we'll just leave the, your answer as the wisest possible answer. Like, it all depends on context. Plucked from the poem, it, it's one of the worst things you could ever write in a poem. Life here is magic. Everything <laughs> depends on context. This is proof to me that you can get away with anything in a poem. You can literally get away with anything. What will poison mm -hmm. one poem will instantly immortalize another poem mm -hmm. makes our jobs quite hard because there are no rules yeah but don't let anyone tell you that you can't ever say x in a poem because they'll always be wrong mm. i mean maybe we should try doing a better job like the context of i think one way way that it feels earned is because he most of the poem is spent questioning he doesn't know a lot about life what about this what about this who would listen to me most of the things he doesn't know so any outright assertion like this feels rare and feels hard-earned. And he also talks so yeah. much about grief that he's not turning a blind eye to pain and suffering. So I don't know, those would be my two cents. But Right. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the suffering of the dead either. Like you said, they, they would want to be here. Even understanding the, the tragedy of living yeah. as well. Which is a weird thing to empathize with, you know? I mean, I guess it's not that weird. Those poor dead people, they, they'll never see how beautiful the stars are again. Um, yes. yes. Turn the page, turn the page to 45. Miracles, exclamation mark. Oh, stand in wonder, angel, for it was us. Oh, great one, us. This is what humans can do. This is what humans are for. Tell the others of these things we added. My breath is insufficient for such praise. So then we haven't failed these generous spaces, these spaces that are ours. Skip a little bit. But one tower was great, was it not? Oh, angel, it was, even next to you. So even compared to the angels, Chartres was great, this cathedral was great, and music rose higher still, soared beyond us. But even just one woman in love, alone at night at her window, didn't she reach your knee? Like, we are divine. We can do divine things. 
these cathedrals we build, even a person in love is so close to being divine that she's rubbing knees with angels. You know, this is divinity. So we haven't failed these generous spaces, that these spaces are almost like they're generous because they they give us this opportunity Mm. to realize or see our divinity, like you said. The wilderness that we've been cast into isn't necessarily a curse because we have been given the the opportunity to build the Chartres Cathedral or fall fall in love. Right. Wow. Okay, so well said. let's go to the eighth oh. elegy. This is the, the animal yeah. elegy. There's something, I know that you're into eco-poetry, right, Liz? You have a, mm-hmm. you have a degree in uh, environmental what's? Yeah, science. science? Yeah. <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, I'd love your take on what he, what he, he's making all these presumptuous um, claims about animals. I'd love your take on this. Basically, the gist of it is, I won't read all of the eighth elegy. With all its eyes, the animal world beholds the open. Only our eyes are as if inverted and set all around it like traps at its portals to freedom. What's outside, we only know from the animal's countenance. For almost from the first, we take a child and twist him around and force him to gaze backwards and take in structure. Not the open that lies so deep in the animal's face, free from death. Only we see death. The free animal has its demise perpetually behind it and before it always. This is probably true, but you can disagree with me. Yeah, deer, deer, I've seen deer get spooked when I walk past them. So they know fear, but instantly they're chewing the grass again. So they're not constantly plagued by their mortality. I'm mortal. I will die. I will die. Ruka's right, I think, to say that, like, yeah, we, we take a kid and train them maybe accidentally, maybe this is inevitable, to be too focused on the pains of the future and the mistakes of the past. So they're not actually living in the open, what he calls the open in this very confusing way. The animal, Mm -hmm. this is mindfulness, back to your point about mindfulness. The animal is always in the present moment. What do you think about this? Is this more baloney? No, no, it's not more baloney. And you know, mindfulness, I feel like that word is just caked in a lot of like, I don't know, preconceptions. But when he writes that they're able to experience the world open without you, like you said, the bookends of the past and the future, I, I think that is definitely something to admire about the other life that lives with us yeah. on this planet. Totally. I, I wrote in this poem that <laughs> maybe I want one of these lines on my grave. It's, it's the line that says, so he's talking about how, how children are able to like see the open and be in the moment again until they're jostled back into this, you know, state of being. But he says that someone who's dying is it. And then this is the, <laughs> these are the lines that I was like, maybe I want them on my grave. For close to death, one sees death no longer and stares out instead perhaps with the wide gaze of animals. I, I, I don't know if, if maybe, maybe your idea of death is too uh, constraining. This is so good. So, so, it's so good. I mean, what a great, I want, now I want that on my grave. We only have, I just want to like sit and like savor that. We only have five minutes. I have to keep moving fast, but gee, that's so great. He says at the end, he says very similar things at the end of this eighth elegy. He celebrates these gnats. They're like, oh, how lucky it would be to be a gnat because you're born and die in in a day. And it's like, you never leave the womb, really. It's like, that's the ideal way to exist. Just back to Ben's comment from last class about the womb being your tomb, you know. Then he says this, he says that wonderful thing on, on page 51 about the way a bat's trace crazes the porcelain of evening. How great is that? Oh, so great. But then he says this, and we, spectators always everywhere, looking at, never out of anything. Animals look out of, you know, but we always, we're looking at death, we're looking at pain, you know. It overfills us. We arrange it, it falls apart. We rearrange it and fall apart ourselves. Who has turned us around like this? So that always, no matter what we do, we're in the stance of someone just departing. 
you've said mm. goodbyes before that are painful. It's really hard to say goodbye to people that you love and you might not see again for a long time. This is like our every single moment of being here as a human. Who has done this to us? No matter what we do, we're in the stance of someone just departing. As he on the last hill that shows him all his valley one last time turns, stops, lingers, we live our lives forever taking leave. This is the tragedy of the human condition. You know, like we're always kind of too conscious of mutability, entropy, pain, impermanence. You know, you reading this with you now changed how I read it. I, when he says that we live our lives forever taking leave, uh, my first thought was that maybe he means that we live our lives for the next thing. Like that, that we're leaving the present moment to go backwards or to go forwards. And that like we're always in, like as, as someone who's departing, you know. This yeah, must yeah. be two sides of the same coin. Right. My, my son, I talked about this in another podcast, but has a really bad case of grass is greener on the other side syndrome. And he's, if only I could, he, he, got, he had this pet turtle. Like, oh, but I want a pet snake. Now I want a pet poison dart frog. And now he wants like 50 poison dart frogs. I'm like, son, 50 poison dart frogs will not make you happy. Because when you have 50, you'll want 51. And then you'll want 52. We always want the next, the next, the next. This is not true for animals. We, or so we can, I think, safely assume. Mm-hmm. But there's this human problem. And in the last few minutes, I think in, in the ninth elegy, he gives us wonderfully climactic kind of solution. So we have, this, we have all these problems, like grief, human grief is a problem, transience is a problem, ephemerality, entropy, pain, the fact that we can't be in the present moment ever, uh, the fact that we're always losing things or we're always assuming that the next thing coming is better. What do we do? Ninth elegy, why, when this span of life might be passed as a laurel, slightly darker than everything else green with tiny waves on the edges of each leaf, like the wind's smile, why then have to be human? And fleeing destiny, long for destiny. Can't we just be leaves, you know? Couldn't we just be a plant? So those beautiful plants in your background. Wouldn't it be better to just be a plant? Maybe. Maybe. Why do we have to be a human? What are humans for? Oh, not for some dream of happiness, that premature profit of an imminent loss. Not out of curiosity, not to give practice to the heart, which would pause, sorry, which would also pulse with laurel, but because life here compels us and because everything here seems to need us. So we've circled back to this theme. Everything here seems to need us. All this fleetingness that strangely entreats us, us, the most fleeting thing. So maybe it's our very fleetingness that the world needs. Oh, Michael, I, I love the, the last part of that stanza, though. Well, he, he, yeah, you should read the last four lines, if you don't mind. So he says, us the most fleeting, once for each thing, only once, once and no more, and we too only once, never again, but to have been once, even though only once, this having been earthly seems lasting, beyond repeal. It's too good. It's way too good. Why? What's good about it? He says, but to have been once, even though only once. Like that this in and of itself is just a gorgeous and wonderful and a wonderful thing. Lasting thing. To have been earthly, you know? I mean, I don't want to get too Mormon-y, but, you know, there's something about life experience. Like we, we needed experience. What is earth for? It's to learn, it's to become earthly. Mm -hmm. That's that's a meaningful thing to gain experience and to become earthly. Without that, we're not who we need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He says, and then, yeah, it, it starts to get even better, I think. Page 55. The traveler doesn't bring from the mountain slope into the valley some handful of sod around which all stand mute, but a word he's gained. So now we're getting into something uniquely human. Humans have these things that no animals do. Whales, maybe. Dolphins and chimps, maybe. I don't know. Language. Bird calls. 
they're not really words. Words are special things. Right, right. Is- I think in something past words, like our, our language, I think word implies something more akin to like truth or knowing. Yeah. And but the combination, like l- truth and knowing, embodied in language. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. something about language that gives humans a kind of knowing, or a kind of access to truth that no animal and no other creature does. So this traveler, it's like when you go up into a mountain and have a great experience. It's like oh, I can't wait to tell my spouse about what I saw today. You don't rush home with the dirt. Like, look at this dirt. You don't do that. You tell that person a story, a word. You come back with words, a pure word, the yellow and blue gentian. What if we're here just for saying house, bridge, fountain, gate, jug, fruit tree, window, at most column tower, but for saying, what if that's our job? Our job is to say. Oh, for such saying as the things themselves never hoped so intensely to be. Isn't this the sly purpose of the taciturn earth when it urges lovers on that in their passion, each single thing should find ecstasy? This is so great, right? Our job is to say stuff because language, I want to live in the poem. That's why we're doing so much reading. I don't want to get outside of the poem. Rilke is rolling in his grave. Thoughts about this? Well, guess what? Um, Can you hear me? Slightly. I can, but... Okay, because guess what? My phone died. <laughs> we, should, we should wrap up. Let's just spend two more minutes on this ending. I can hear you good enough. Okay. I am so sorry. Michael. That's good. It's good it's volume. Just like, it's just so, it's just really This is great. This has been so great. What, any thoughts about language? We're, we're just here to say stuff. Like that's our purpose. And it, it's, an, it's an important thing. Oh, man. Well, you know, uh, this makes me think of something. The, the idea of like what is so important about language, that kind of idea, I think, is something that, you know, if posed in, if, for example, this podcast, it's really difficult to answer immediately. Yeah. But one of the beauties that, of this group of elegies being written over a decade is that I would imagine real uh, was thinking about these things that he had been like, you know, soaking in the idea of language for years or enjoying language for years. It, 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 is, it, it is, of course, something that someone would say who is so obsessed with language. But I don't think it's only like, oh, he's a poet, so of course he would say this. <clears throat> this goes back to your wonderful comment earlier about you don't want to get too snobbish about I'm an artist and therefore different than other humans. All humans have this duty to speak truth to embody knowledge in words. Yeah. It gets kind of, kind of hard to describe. Yeah. Neither of us could do a better job than Rilke does on the bottom of page 55. This is what humans should do. I think this Mm -hmm. is kind of for me, maybe the best climax of the poems. What are we here for? Why not just be born a laurel tree, you know, Mm -hmm. because laurel tree, laurel trees can't talk. They can't, Praise the world to the angel. This is what he says on the bottom of 55. Praise the world to the angel, not what's unsayable. You can't impress him, the angel, with lofty emotions. In the cosmos that shapes his feelings, you're a mere novice. So angels have emotions maybe that we don't, beauty that we don't. We're a novice in that realm. Mm -hmm. The realm in which we're not a novice is the world, right? Earthly, this is the benefit of being earthly. Therefore, show him some simple object formed from generation to generation until it's truly our own, dwelling near our hands and in our eyes. Tell him of things. He'll stand more amazed as you stood beside the rope maker in Rome or by the potter along the Nile. Show him how happy a thing can be, how innocent an hour's, how even sorrow's lament resolves upon form serves as a thing or dies into a thing and in that blissful beyond is unmoved even by the violin right so it's like if you ever see an angel hold up a piece of rope and say look at this and the angel will say i can't believe it what is that 
we don't have those where I come from, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And even grief, like even grief, he says, embodied in form, mm-hmm. the form of sound, the form of weeping, the form of music, the form of elegies. These are elegies, sound waves, vibrations in the air. That, that's a thing. That's a concrete physical object. They don't have those where angels come from, you know? This is, this is what humans are for. Yes. I don't know. The, 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 um, uh, not accessories or, and not also, uh, those trinkets that you get off of vacation, neither of those things, but things that you collect by becoming earthly. Yeah. yeah. Love that. I love that. You know, every, every little kid, including mine have the, their rock collections. Like this rock just looks cool. You know, it's just, it's small and it's stupid and it's not hard to replace. This isn't a piece of gold, you know? Yes. It's just a thing that has a contour and a shape that is its own. Mm-hmm. You know? That I can see. Yeah, that's right. That you can see and hold and touch and feel. It has yeah. a temperature. Yes. It has a weight. It has a form. It has a form. That's the job of poetry. That's what we need to do. That's what angels can't do. Talk about the beauty of embodied objects, of embodiment. Us, the most fleeting of things, have to talk about the beauties of fleetingness, you know? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, last words. I've kept you 10 minutes late. Thank you so much for your patience and your indulgence. And as usual, I've done way too much talking, but... No, no. It's the table. And, and I think what... what... Oh, go ahead. No, you. Oh, I, I just think... I think what I've enjoyed the most about having this conversation with you is like the, the feelings and the mood and the, the place that it's, it settles me in when I think about these poems and when I talk about these poems or mm-hmm. even when I like experience these poems on the page. Mm-hmm. I hope that we haven't done Rilke too much injustice. We have. This has been a kind of oral commentary. Sorry, Rilke. But mostly Liz and I just, you know, totally love your poems wherever you are. There's no difference between the living and the dead. You know, we make these distinct distinctions and angels know better. Yes. So, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, And they are rapturous and give us solace and help. Absolutely. So thank you very much. Yeah. Well, I need to let you go. You're a busy person. No, no, no. Everyone's busy. You're not, you're, you're, you teach 150. You're not less busy than me. Thank you so much for taking the time. <laughs> yes, thank you. And uh, have a great day. Okay. Bye, Liz. Bye, Michael. So the Duino Elegies are one of those books of poems that have in them embedded, I guess you could call them little writing prompts. I hate to reduce them. That phrase sounds so reductive. They're more like extremely meaningful spiritual injunctions. But they can, on a more superficial level, be read as writing prompts. One of my favorites is on page 55 of this edition. It's in the ninth Duino Elegy. This is in a moment when Rilke is imagining that you have an audience uh, of the angels. You get to meet an angel or several angels face to face. Angels who don't really know what it is to be mortal or to live in the world. And what, as a poet, should we tell them? This is what Rilke says. Praise the world to the angel, not what's unsayable. You can't impress him with lofty emotions. In the cosmos that shapes his feelings, you're a mere novice. Therefore, show him some simple object, formed from generation to generation until it's truly your own, dwelling near our hands and in our eyes. Tell him of things. He'll stand more amazed, as you stood beside the rope maker in Rome, or by the potter along the Nile. This is really one of the climaxes of the Duino Elegy sequence. I think it's so beautiful. Praise the world to the angel. Tell him of things. Don't dwell in lofty emotions. I love this memory that he has. Remember when you met that potter in Rome and were amazed by his pots, or you stood by that rope maker on the banks of the Nile and looked at that rope and were just stunned by how beautiful and well-made it was? That is what an angelic being could never understand. The beauty and meaning and importance and profundity and rarity and fleetingness of ephemeral things, physical objects, embodiment itself, you know? We saw Miwosh do this with Watering Can. We saw Herbert do this in those little prose poems, in some, some of those little prose poems. What I want you to do for this writing prompt is to pick something, an object, a small, simple thing, a wheelbarrow, a vase, 
a watering can. Don't talk about your emotions. Don't talk about your ideas. Don't talk about this object as a symbol for something else. Simply show me your amazement of this object and convince me that this object is in fact worthy of amazement. I think if you can do that, you've done most of what it takes to write a great poem. And now for the poem of the day. One of my favorite poets of objects, this poet, French poet named Francis Ponge, I think he had a very clear influence on Chezwa Miwosh and Zbigniew of Herbert. I think you'll be able to tell from the small prose poem that I'm about to read. Most of his poems were about small, mundane, everyday objects that he makes you see in a totally new way. Here's one of my favorites called The Pleasures of the Door. Kings do not touch doors. They know nothing of this pleasure. Pushing before one gently or brusquely one of those large, familiar panels, then turning back to replace it, holding a door in one's arms. The pleasure of grabbing the midriff of one of these tall obstacles to a room by its porcelain node. That short clinch during which movement stops, the eye widens, and the whole body adjusts to its new surrounding. With a friendly hand, one still holds onto it, before closing it decisively and shutting oneself in, which the click of the tight but well-oiled spring pleasantly confirms. That's it for today. The next recording will be, I think, a discussion between me and Sam about the poetry of Emily Dickinson. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, praise the things of this world to the angels, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Bye.